so at Hope, we preach through uh, books of the Bible section by section, and so we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And if you were here last week, then you, you saw the first part of the passage that we're looking at today. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you're using a pew Bible, there are Bibles near you. This is on page 870. And last week we were talking about the fact that, that Jesus quite often was not pro-religion. <laughs> that, that, that Jesus actually strongly opposed false religion, legalistic religion, uh, religious leaders who are abusing their offices or, or, or teaching falsely. And we even heard that in our Old Testament passage that, that Bob read for us. I mean, that, that's a difficult passage. We, we could do a whole sermon on that passage. There'd be a lot to talk about. But what it shows is God's holy and righteous concern for the that his leaders, that, that leaders in the church are actually being faithful to the word and, and not leading people astray. And so last week we, we saw first Jesus laying out these three woes against this group of religious hypocrites called the Pharisees. And he, he delivered these three woes on them because they had been taking what is the, the true religion of the Old Testament and had been amassing rules and traditions to surround it. And I, I saw a, a story um, this past week about a, a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews that gathered in um, New York at, um, well, actually in New Jersey at MetLife Stadium um, for a big conference celebrating the completion of the Babylonian Talmud. So it's this multi-volume work that really is the, the traditions of the Pharisees that had been written down. And it takes a long time to read it. Uh, that they, they take a page and read it front and back every day for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, they've read through it once. But that's the, the, what the traditions were like. They were, they were complicated. They were complex. Um, they were hard for an ordinary person to understand. And you can think about the, the laws of the Pharisees and their traditions almost something like the American legal code, right? Where no one, one person understands it all, and especially ordinary people. That's why we have trained lawyers who spend many, many years studying the law so that they can apply it, so they can help other people who haven't had that time. And it was the same for the Pharisees, that the, all of the laws and the traditions were, were so vast and so complicated that they needed an entire group of religious scholars, religious teachers called the lawyers, who helped them know how to apply all of this complicated law to their lives. And so Jesus then, after delivering these three woes against the Pharisees, the teachers of the Pharisees, the lawyers, pipe up and say, hey, you're insulting us also. Uh, that, that this is an implicit indictment of our teaching. And so Jesus then turns and delivers three woes on them as well. And that's our, our text today. So again, this is Luke chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 45. 
And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witness, witnesses, and you uh, um, consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hinder those who were entering. And he went away from there, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the, the words of our hearts, the, the meditation of our, uh, our, our, the meditation of our hearts, the words of our lips, Lord, that all of it would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, that, that you would use this passage to help us be able to discern true and false teaching, Lord, that you would strengthen us for your service, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as a pastor, it's sometimes surprisingly difficult to have ordinary conversations with people um, because at first you start, you start talking to somebody and they, they, they're very friendly, they're very warm, and then they find out that you're a pastor and it's just immediately the, the conversation just crashes and, and they don't want anything to do with you and you can just tell that they're maybe hostile to religious teachers across the board. Or sometimes you start talking to somebody and they're kind of indifferent, they're not interested in talking, and then they find out you're a pastor and all of a sudden they kind of sit up in their chairs and they, they ask you all kinds of questions and treat you like you're this very wise, spiritual person, even though they don't know anything about you. Um, and, and I find both of those reactions understandable, but then also unhelpful in the end. Uh, because the, on the side of just rejecting all religious teachers, that's not a, a good response because there's a value in true religious teaching. Jesus himself dedicated a, a huge amount of his time and ministry teaching. Uh, he commanded his disciples to go out and teach. And in the New Testament, one of the, the main qualifications for an elder in the church is to be apt to teach. And so teaching is valuable. It's important. But that also doesn't mean that we should be naive and just accept everybody because they're a religious teacher. That there's this kind of healthy skepticism of religious teaching. And uh, we should recognize that just because somebody's ordained or just because they have REV by their name, it doesn't mean that they're somehow 
more spiritual or more godly, that there are, are plenty of religious teachers who are actually false teachers or uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who are actually unhelpful to the church. But then this is hard for us because it, we can't just, in a blanket way, reject or accept all teachers. And so what do we do? That we actually have to, to be discerning and evaluate teachers in some way, distinguish between true and false teachers. But so how do we do that? How do we tell the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher? And in our text today from the book of Luke, um, Jesus is, is laying down these three woes against the, the, the lawyers, these religious teachers. And so if we pay really close attention to these three woes, uh, we begin to see three lessons about how to spot the difference between a, a true teacher and a false teacher. And so first, we should watch out for legalistic teachers. Second, we should watch out for self-deluded teachers. And then third, we should watch out for deceptive teachers. So for legalistic teachers, self-deluded teachers, and deceptive teachers. And so first, we should watch out for legalistic teachers. And, and look in your Bible again, or if you closed it, you can open it again to Luke 11 and look at verse 46. Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so Jesus here is accusing the lawyers of, of being legalistic, of, of laying these incredible burdens on people when they should have been offering grace and hope and life. Instead, they were offering lists of rules and, and telling people, this is what you have to follow if you're going to earn God's favor, and that those lists of rules were so hard to bear, they were a burden. And you can think about it as, as something like medical debt. I, I saw this story this week that was talking about medical debt in America, and they said that half a million Americans file for bankruptcy every year as a result of unpaid medical bills. But then what will happen is that a hospital may sell that debt to a collection agency, and they sell it at a discounted rate. And then the collection agency will go after the debtor trying to then get the full amount and then to make a profit in the end. And so the hospital, hospital gets something, and then hopefully in the, the debt collector's mind, they'll get even more. And so it's a really a, a terrible system. But there was a, a ministry that saw this problem, and they, they, they started raising money from churches and from individuals. And so they would go out as if they were a debt collection agency and would buy debt at a discounted rate. And then instead of sending out the, the repo man to collect, they would send, simply send the people letters saying, your debt has been paid in full, the debt is gone, and then they would just list the church that, that paid the debt. And so it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of the gospel. It's a really cool thing for a church to do. But I also think that it's a great illustration of the difference between a legalistic teacher and a true gospel teacher. Because spiritually, biblically, every single one of us has a, a debt to God. We, we 
owe God our love, we owe him our obedience, but that because of our, our rebellion against God, we're in default to God because of sin. And that a, a legalistic teacher then is like somebody who comes and tries to take on that debt. And they say, you have a debt to God, but instead of offering hope of forgiveness, they say, all right, you need to pay back to God what is owed. You need to get your, your act together. And they say, you need to spend more time reading your Bible or more time praying or more time with your family or more time at work or more time in your vocation or, or more time caring for the environment or serving the poor or working for racial justice or social justice or serving your church or serving your neighborhood. And then they say, you're doing this, but you're failing. You're not working hard enough. You need to, to try harder. You haven't yet paid back what is owed to God. And it keeps going and going, and we, we have this, this debt that weighs us down as a burden. And sadly, though, this kind of a, a debt to God, this kind of legalistic teaching, is actually attractive to us in a very strange way. Because just like debts we have um, in, in our world, whether medical debt or credit card debt, we like the idea of being able to, to work off our debt ourselves. We like to think that we are somehow in control, that we can do it on our own. And so when we hear legalistic teachers saying, just try harder, be better, you're not doing enough, work harder, we think, oh, this is very practical. This is really useful teaching. This is really making a difference for my life because I want to do all of these things. I want to be better. I want to read my Bible more. But the problem is, is that if we take this, this yoke of legalistic teaching and we put it on our shoulders, that only one of two things can happen. Only two things can flow out of it. The, the f one is that we'll work harder and harder and we'll continue to fail and to fail and to fail. And then we'll just throw up our hands and walk away from the church and just say, you know what, I just want nothing to do with religion. I want nothing to do with these religions. I just want to go live life the way I want. I want to be the master of my own fate. And, and so we walk away. Or if we don't do that, we realize... I can't really follow all of these rules, not in, in, in the true sense of having it be in the heart and flowing out, but I may be able to put all of my energy into just maintaining outward appearances. And so if I'm really careful and really guarded, I can seem like I'm following the rules to everyone around me. And so again, if, if we drink the, the Kool-Aid of this legalistic teaching, Either we'll become irreligious church dropouts or we'll become religious church hypocrites. But neither place is a good spot to be. But if you go back then to the, this image of, of medical debt and you think about, well, if a false teacher is like the, the repo man coming to collect our debt to God, then true biblical teaching is like the, the letter that people received saying, your, your debt has been paid in full. And that Jesus is the one who, who comes and he takes on our debt. And that's why he goes to the cross, that he, he takes all of the burdens of our debt on himself. He pays the price for it with his own precious blood. 
And then he, he, he gives us hope of, of life as we repent and, and we trust in him that, that we get the letter saying, you know, paid in full, compliments of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, the difference between true and false teaching can be a difference of emphasis in, in what theologians call law and gospel, that, that law is about what we must do for God. And the gospel is about what God has done for us. And so as we're listening then to religious teaching, we can kind of have an, have an ear out for saying, is, is the main emphasis of this on law or is it on gospel? Is, is the main emphasis here on, on what I must do for God or is the main emphasis on what God has freely done for me in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And as it presents even moral duty, is it presenting moral duty as a burden that you must bear to then work your way up to God? Or does it present it as a response to forgiveness? Look at how all of your debts have been paid through the mercy and the love of God in Christ. And so, praise the Lord, we can actually begin to, to live differently in light of that. And so that's our, our first point, that we should watch out for legalistic teachers. But then second, we should watch out for self-deluded teachers. And look in your Bible at verse 47. It says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witness, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And so, what we're being presented here is this picture of these religious teachers, these lawyers, as self-deluded, as trying to essentially put themselves on the right side of history, where they, they look back at the Old Testament and they say, oh yes, such wonderful examples in the Old Testament, and, and if I had lived then, I would have been, been one of the faithful prophets. I would have been one of the people who was persecuted by the religious establishment. But Jesus says that actually they're the ones who would have killed the prophets. They're the ones who would have persecuted those who were actually hearing and speaking God's word. And so Jesus says that the blood of all the prophets, from the first righteous person in the Old Testament who was killed, Abel, to the last righteous person who was killed in the Old Testament, Zechariah, that all of it would, would be required of his own generation because they're the ones ultimately who would, who would murder the Son of God. And so this is harsh condemnation of these religious teachers. But I think that, that you and I can actually have a similar self-deluded response of trying to put ourselves on the right side of history. That this is a way that so, so often Sunday schools are, are taught, where uh, we, they, the kids read the Bible story, and then they say, you know, here, look at the bad people. Let's thank God that we're not like all of those bad people in the Old Testament. And let's thank God that we're actually a lot more like 
the good people, and let's just keep on being like the good people in the Bible. And we do the same thing even with church history, where if you're a, a church history buff like me, you're, there's this temptation to, to look at the past and say, oh, well, if I had lived in the, the third century, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have denied Christ, I would have gone to the, to the lions in the Colosseum. Or if I had lived in the fourth century, I would have stood up for the divinity of Christ and against Arius. Or if I had lived in the Protestant Reformation, I would have worked for the, the Reformation of the Church. If, or, or if I had lived in the, the First Great Awakening, I would have stood with uh, Whitfield and Edwards and, and people who were standing against a fairly legalistic establishment in the church and preaching the gospel that we must be born again. Or if I had lived in the antebellum South, I would have opposed slavery. Or if I had lived in the 1920s, I would have advocated for the authority and inerrancy of scripture in America. Or if I had lived in Nazi Germany, I would have spoken up about anti-Semitism and against the Third Reich. And so we, we look at history and we say, I really would be the person on the, on the right side. But actually in the process of that kind of thinking that we can actually become self-deluded we put ourselves there, but in reality, if you think of reading the Bible, every single person in the Bible, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sinner who desperately needed the grace of God. And so we, we actually look at examples of, of repentance, people looking to, to God alone for hope. And it's the same with, with church history, that you can find countless mistakes, even among the greatest examples of leaders in the history of the church, how they failed over and over again. And that we respect teachers of the past, um, not because they had it all together, but actually we respect the ones who admitted that they were on the wrong side of history, who admitted that they didn't have it all together, who were the first to say, no, I am a sinner, and that my only hope is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the opposite of, of self-delusion. That's the opposite of putting yourself on the right side of history. It's putting yourself and all of humanity on the wrong side and putting Jesus Christ as the only one on the right side and looking to him for, for life and, and for hope and for everything. And so this is, again, something to think about as you're evaluating true and false teaching, to say, how does the, the teacher seem to think of themselves? Are they putting themselves in the category of of the good people over against the bad people? Or are they willing to humble themselves and say, no, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need the grace of Christ. And so that's our, our second point, that we should watch out for self-deluded teachers. But then third and finally, we should watch out for deceptive teachers. And look at verse 52. Jesus says, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. And so Jesus is saying that, that the, these false teachers were deceptive because they took away the key of knowledge. And so it, it's this form of a, a cover-up where they read the Old Testament, they knew the Old Testament, they knew the grace of God and the holiness of God and the love of God, um, but instead of opening up the, the true knowledge of God that is in scriptures, they covered it up, they hid the knowledge, they threw away the key, and actually hindered others from entering in as well. 
And like all cover-ups, they did it for a good reason, at least in their own minds. Because they had invested so much time and energy in studying and being right in their entire lives. And then here comes Jesus teaching something that essentially negates their entire vocation. Essentially saying that, that all of their, their power, all of their influence wasn't valuable. It wasn't what actually mattered. It wasn't what was important. That they weren't the ones that people should be, be looking to for, for religious guidance. And so in, instead of being able to admit that, they, they begin the cover-up and, and begin to, to conceal and hide the key to the knowledge of God. And I have a, a friend who, who worked at a, a prominent megachurch as a videographer, and there was incredible corruption, especially from the, the senior pastor of the church, and um, he was blowing up in anger at people, um, and there was shady financial business. And uh, as a videographer, they, were, they encouraged them to just delete the footage. They, were, they had footage of him blowing up at a student. They said, just delete it. Uh, because we, we don't want the, the truth to come to light, because we want to protect the ministry, because we want to protect this kind of empire of a religious institution that we have built. Perhaps in their minds, even with a good motivation of not wanting the, the name of Christ to be, to be damaged, but also, I think, not wanting to, to lose the power, the influence, the, the significance. And so rather than proclaiming the truth, even if it's a hard truth, they hide the truth, lock it away, throw away the key. But I think that this is really what false teachers are, are tempted to do across the board, to hide different aspects of who God is and what he did. And so some religious leaders might try to hide the knowledge of God's holiness. So they, they read the Bible and discover that, that God is he's holy, he's righteous, he's a just judge. And he, you read the, the Old Testament, you see the, the wrath of God displayed and proclaimed in, in many ways. But then the teacher might even look at his or her own heart and say, well, I'm, I'm living in, I, I have this sin in my own life. And I want to be able to hold on to this pattern of, of sin. And so rather than proclaiming the holiness of God and what his true standard is, just lower the standard a little bit, hide that aspect of God's holiness, throw away the key, and just say, well, God is, he, you're, he, God's fine with you no matter where you are, um, that, that, that God just wants you to try your best. Um, God is only love, there's no holiness, there's, there's no justice. But I think that, that Jesus would say that you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourself and you hinder those who are entering. Or, on the other side, there can be religious leaders who hide the knowledge of God's love and, and grace and, and mercy. And that's more similar to the, the problem that the lawyers had here where they, they might read the Bible and, and see that, yeah, the Bible clearly says that we're saved not through our good deeds, but through the complete free grace of God that we receive with, with open hands. But that could mean the end of their ceremonies, the end of their institutions, 
uh, the end of their, their influence, the end of their, their tithes. And so there's this temptation to hide the knowledge of God, say, no, God is he's a holy, righteous, just judge, and he's angry at you. And the only way that that can be rectified is through us. So come to our institution, come to our teaching. We hold the secret of the key of the knowledge of coming to God. And so, you know, come be part of our group and then you can discover the secret and we can unlock it for a small donation. And that also is this false teaching, the spiritual cover-up. But as we then evaluate the, the differences between true and false teaching, this is a question to ask. As we, we read the Bible, we say, what is the true picture of God in the Bible? And does the teaching that I'm hearing reflect the, the full-orbed picture of the God of the Bible? Is this a balanced picture where, where it's not taking some aspect of who God reveals himself to be in the Bible, hiding that at the expense of something else? And, and if you do ever, ever see that somebody's hiding the holiness or the sovereignty or the love or the the grace of God, to think, say, why are they hiding it? What are they trying to protect? Why the cover-up of who God is and what he has done? But in the end, though, the, the most reliable way to spot the difference between true and false teaching um, is ultimately look, to look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it, it's the cross of Christ that, that shows both the holiness and the love of God so beautifully together that the cross shows the the holiness of God because God doesn't just forgive sin that sin is it must be punished and either we will bear the punishment or Christ will bear the punishment in our on our place and, and so if God wasn't holy the cross wouldn't have been necessary but at the same time the cross shows the love of God because God sent his son to die he sent his son to to bear the penalty so that we can receive that letter of complete forgiveness complete acceptance only by admitting we can't do it by admitting that we're on the wrong side and Christ is on the wrong right side and trusting in him alone and that's the reason that we end each of our services with this meal that that this meal is, is a, a picture of the cross of Christ and we said that that false teaching tries to uh, lay burdens on people that it, it's legalistic and this is the opposite, because this is saying that we're not receiving a burden of more rules, but we're actually partaking of Christ, that we're receiving the gift of his life and death and resurrection for us. And we said that, that false teaching is self-deluded, that it puts itself on the, on the right side of history. But here again, this is a picture of the fact that Christ's body was broken his, and his blood was shed, that it, it, it puts us on the wrong side of history, Christ on the right, but then still offers hope of, of life and, and forgiveness. And we said also that, that false teaching is deceptive, that it hides who God is. But this picture of, of Jesus and his work lays open the fullness of God and his holiness and his justice and his love and his mercy, even to people like us.